we can always hope, right? So if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 7, I'm going to pick up where Jeremy, actually we're going to pick up in Exodus, the end of Exodus chapter 6, verse 28, but if you want to go ahead and flip to Exodus chapter 7, while I get my stuff pulled up, while you're doing that, I don't want to edit my notes, I don't want to delete my sermon, that'd get exciting. Uh, while you're doing that, um, this morning, uh, the kind of the theme, the thrust of this passage, what we're going to see basically almost in every word from verse chapter 6, verse 28, all the way to the end of 713, is we're going to see the sovereignty of God on display. So we're going to see, that there's one phrase that's repeated a couple times in this, ver- in this passage, uh, but it's repeated throughout Exodus multiple times, and that's the phrase, I am the Lord. And so uh, with that is, is the doctrine and the theology of God as being sovereign over all things. And so as you're, as you're flipping to that passage, one of the things I want to ask you and just to pause to think about for a minute is think about a point in your life, if you can, uh, of when you came to a fork in the road that you had to make a decision. You had to make a decision, and you knew whichever, way, whichever choice you made, it was going to change the trajectory of your life. And, and God in his sovereignty influence that decision in one way or another. So for me, I think back to when I graduated high school. I was 18 years old, I think, and I was trying to decide what college to go to. I had been up to Kansas State University, and I loved it. It was a beautiful campus, really good school. One of my best friends was going there. Um, we, we really liked the school. And, and so I was wrestling with, man, should I go to K-State versus the other school, a much better school, Texas Tech. I say that just for Courtney's sake. So, so do I go to Tech where I've grown up loving it? My granddad played football there. My parents went there. My older brother just graduated from it. Do I, which one do I go to? You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of wrestling. What do I want to do with my life? I, I don't know what God has for me. Uh, and and I, love, I love K-State. Beautiful. Best friend going there. It's eight hours away from family. Uh, I love Tech. I grew up go, going to games, being a part of it. Like, that's, that's who we were is we were Red Raiders. And so I just... God, what do you want me to do? God, what school do I go to? Where would you lead me? And, and I, I never felt like God gave a clear answer. Till one day, I was wearing one pair of my favorite shorts, and the button popped off. And there was only one button sewer back on, button sewer on her in our family, and that was my grandmother. So I, we packed them up, we sent them down to Lubbock, where she was, and asked her to sew on the button for my shorts. So she did, and she, then she sent them back. And so I got them back, and I was like, yes, favorite shorts are back. And I put them on, and I started doing whatever I was doing. I reached my hand under my pocket, and there was a little note. And that note said, just so you know, buttons don't get sewn back on in Manhattan. (laughs) And at that point, at that point, it was Texas Tech. The sovereignty of God was influential in my life through a button popping off the pants, right? Something as simple as that. Because if I would have chosen K-State, I would have never met Jordan. I wouldn't have ever married her. I, I don't know if I would have gone to seminary. I don't know what would have happened to me. I wouldn't have had the kids that I have now. Like that, that moment and that button popping off of my pants, it seems so silly and so simple. But think about how something like that just totally changed the trajectory of, of me being here now today. And, and I'm sure there's a point in which you can reflect and say the same thing that gets you in this seat today. You wouldn't be here now if God in his sovereignty and God in his wisdom hadn't in some form or fashion brought you here. So, 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 so the main thrust of the message today is that this, it is that Jesus is God saying, God says, I am the Lord. And in his saying that, we see his sovereignty. So 
I'm going to read chapter 6, verse 28. I'm going to go all the way to the end of verse 13, and then we will walk through this passage, all right? So um, chapter 6, 28, this is what it says. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. You should underline that phrase every time you encounter it in the book of Exodus. Your, your Bible will be full of underlines. You should even go back to the beginning. The, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff, still, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, the, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God, would you bless the reading of your word? Would you bless the preaching of your word? And God, now may we see that you are the Lord and that we are not. May we respond accordingly. God, empower the preaching of your word so that your name may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I've divided this up into four scenes, kind of. Four scenes that we see in this. We're going to walk through them. The first scene we see is Moses' questioning. Chapter 6, 28, right? Right on the heels of going through the genealogy Jeremy preached on last week, God comes to Moses and he renews his call. Moses, I am the Lord. You're going to go tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And what does Moses do again? But, 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 I, I can't. I can't do it, God. I, I'm, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips, right? Every time God has called Moses to do something, what is Moses' response? He comes up with a reason or excuse he can't. But think about this from Moses' perspective for a minute. Moses, last time he went to Pharaoh, what happened? He went to Pharaoh in chapter 5. He says, Pharaoh, I'm here on, on, on behalf of the Lord God Yahweh, and I'm, I'm asking for a three-day hiatus to go into the desert to worship our God. And what does Pharaoh say? You lazy Israelites. You think you have time to go and worship God for three days? No way. I ain't putting up with that. I'm doubling your work. Now I'm not bringing you any straw. you got to find the straw to make your bricks, and you have to main, maintain production while you're doing all this. So, so Moses, who finally has worked up the courage to say, okay, God, I'll go talk to Pharaoh. He goes and talks to Pharaoh, and, and, and he's talked to the people of Israel, and they're behind him. Yeah, we're good. And then when he encounters Pharaoh, Pharaoh says that. How do you think Moses is feeling at this point in the game? Man, he's, he's not just made things bad. Like, he's made them worse, a lot worse. Now, not only Pharaoh won't listen to him or have anything to do with him, but the people of Israel, who he's supposed to be leading out of, out of Egypt, aren't listening to him e either. They are like, curse you, Moses. 
curse you. I've had enough. I don't want to be with you anymore. So, so if you're Moses, what would you do? I mean, if God's called you to do something and finally you work up the courage, okay, God, I'm going to do it, and then you go do it, and all of a sudden things don't just get bad, but they get ten times worse, and everybody hates you, how would you respond? I mean, would, I mean if it was me, I'd be like, Moses, I'd be like, okay, God, I tried to follow you. I must have misunderstood that bush that was on fire that didn't burn up but spoke to me in the desert. must really not have been. I'd been in the hot sun, heat stroke, something. Like, I am not going back, right? I'm, I'm exiting stage left. Let's get out of town before I get stoned. So, so, so we look at Moses, and we're kind of like, Moses, dude, God's talking to you. But on the flip side, if we stand in Moses' shoes, I'm with him. I don't even know that I'm waiting around to hear the next command. I'm just gone. But think about this for a minute from God's perspective. The basis of God's call to Moses is that very first phrase, I am the Lord. God is the one who has created those faltering lips, those uncircumcised lips. And God is saying to Moses, you you shouldn't be responding to me in question. God wasn't asking for a volunteer. He was giving a command. So on one hand, Moses doesn't even have the right to question or or to, to doubt. And on the other hand, God's given him Aaron, his brother, who's a straight A speaker, who's got all the rhetorical ability that Moses doesn't have, and he's saying, dude, you're just going to talk to Aaron, and Aaron's going to talk to Pharaoh. So, so Moses is trying to back up here, which, again, we can't blame him, but on the flip side, God's like, dude, no, I have, I've known what this is going to take. I know the plan here. God wasn't asking for a volunteer. He was ordering him to go, and he was, that order was based on the sovereignty and lordship of who God is. Church, the commands of God are not invitations to dialogue, but they're orders to obey. Once God told Moses what to do, all he needed Moses to do was simply obey. Now, I've been a parent for about five years now. And there is a point in time as a parent when you tell your kids to do something and your kids respond. And what, when they respond, what's what your phrase as a parent back to them? Because I said so right? I don't, I, go brush your teeth. I don't need to give you a 10-minute dialogue over why it's important for you to brush your teeth. Hey, go pick up your room. It's time to go to bed. We, we've done this enough now that when I tell you to go brush your teeth or go pick up your room, the answer should just be, yes, sir. And then they go do it, right? But they don't do it. <laughs> they don't, right? As I've stepped back and I've reflected on that for a minute, and I've gone, why will they not just do what I asked them to do? I go, well, look at their dad. Right? I mean, God tells us in his word to honor honor our father and mothers. My father and mother are here today. They live around the corner from me. And there's been a few times that I have been frustrated with my parents, and my children probably see me respond in frustration and not honor my parents so, so if they see me act that way towards my mom and dad, why would I expect them to do anything different to me? Right? God's word tells his followers to humbly consider others more important than yourselves. So, so when I'm sitting on the couch and my wife asks me to go get my daughter a piece of pizza, not that this happened last night, but I'm comfortable and I've had a day and I want to just veg and relax and I don't give up my comfort and I don't give up my want, and I don't give up what I want to do, and my three children sit on the couch and they see that, 
why would I expect them to act any differently than how they've seen their father? Now, I haven't been a dad very long, but I think as I've reflected on this, I don't think my experience is unique. As a matter of fact, I think it's part of of what I've, I've heard one author call the fallen condition focus. It's what we all have. We all have our own wants and desires, and instead of when God says, I am the Lord, you will consider others more, hum- uh, more important than yourselves. You will bear one another burdens. You will not forsake the meeting together as others have done. When God gives these commands in Scripture, and we say, you know what, I'd rather just take this one off. I don't think that's unique to me, but I, I think it's, it's common among all of us, and when our kids see it, they just do the same thing we do. Church, we're a lot like Moses in that we question God and we don't respond immediately, happily, and humbly. Rather, but, 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 I just want to sit down for five minutes, please. But why do you want me to do this? Because I said so. We respond with a question. We always have some excuse. Here's the thing. What commands God has issued for his creation are not things that are up for negotiation. And that brings us to the second point of this passage that we see, and that's God's sovereignty. Now, we see God's sovereignty in a lot of ways. It's it's literally in every verse of this, of our passage today. The first way we see it is in the fact that I am the Lord. God, in in who he is, has the ability to call and command people. Like The first way we see God's sovereignty is that the basis of what he's telling Moses to do is who he is. So so we see it in that. And then second, we see his sovereignty in the fact that he chose Moses to do this task, right? Now, this is mind-blowing. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. What? Made you like God? What? What's going on here? You have to have some understanding of Egyptian ideology and what's going on in this, in context, in history, to, to wrap your mind around this. So, Here's a little background. In Egyptian royal ideology, Pharaoh was considered to be a divine being. Pharaoh was considered, when he took on the kingship of Pharaoh, he he was viewed as having received the power of the gods, lowercase g. And as a divine being, he wouldn't speak directly to his people. Rather, he would speak to someone else who would then communicate to the people. So, if that's how they view Pharaoh, what's God doing in choosing Moses, who can't speak, and giving him Aaron, who can speak? God's just beating Pharaoh at his own game. He's, play, he's playing Pharaoh's game. So, so, so instead of Moses speaking direct, Moses is actually being viewed as God to Pharaoh because Moses won't speak to Pharaoh. Rather, he'll talk to Aaron, and Aaron will communicate to Pharaoh. So, so what God is doing in this, and by choosing Again, we, go back, we think about the button popping off, and this is crazy that God has brought me to tech, which has brought me to here, which has met this girl, which has brought me back here today. Like, God has chosen Pharaoh from the beginning of, the war, beginning of time, knowing that Pharaoh wouldn't have the ability to speak, and that Pharaoh would be afraid to speak, and that's why God wanted him. God wanted him because he knew he couldn't do it, and he would need someone else, and so all of that to set up this point in time. The sovereignty of God is seen in, in just the fact that he chose Moses, who can't speak, so that Moses would, would speak to Aaron, to Pharaoh, so that he could show that, Pharaoh, you're not God, I am the Lord. Moses is not simply like God to Pharaoh. He truly is God to Pharaoh in that God is acting through Moses. So 
God's sovereignty is seen in the fact that he can call Moses. He can call us. It's second, it's seen, it's seen in the fact that he chose Moses and, and Moses in all his weaknesses and inabilities. And third, it's seen in verse three. Verse three and four. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring my host, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now, church, these two verses have given me much consternation this week. This has been a problem for me to understand and grasp a hold of what God is communicating. Because from the outset, we see that God is saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But then he says, I'm going to judge Egypt because of Pharaoh's hard heart. So there seems to be some conflict in these two verses here in which we don't really understand how is God just in judging Pharaoh whose heart he hardened. That seems, from where I sit and where a lot of other people have sat throughout church history, to make God seem unjust. And I'll be honest with you, I sat at the table in there for two hours this week with Jeremy and Will and Pastor Carlos from Primera, and we went around and around about what this verse means and how to interpret it and what the implications are of it. And we, I don't know, I don't know if you have an answer, but we all disagreed at the end for the most part. So, so what I'm saying to you right now is I don't have a good answer. Uh, I don't know what to do with some of this. There was a couple articles that were helpful to me, and I'm going to utilize those and, and use some of the phrases and wording that they use to try and help maybe give us something to grasp and understand this. But even in the midst of this, I don't know that it answers all the questions that I have. So, so I'm giving you my best effort to understand how we see God's sovereignty in hardening Pharaoh's heart and in judging Pharaoh for having a hard heart. Again, I'm counting on some other people to help help influence my thoughts here, and I don't think it has a complete answer, but it's a start. So first, first thing that may help us understand what is going on in this context is that prior to God calling Moses, prior to Moses being a part of the picture, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt were wicked and corrupt people. They have enslaved the Israelites for over 400 years. They have murdered their children. So prior to any of where we are here in, in this book of Exodus, we see that Pharaoh already had a hard heart. His heart was already rebellious towards God. Not only that, the nation that he ruled seemed to agree with him. At least they didn't oppose his evil actions. So from the outset, we know that Pharaoh has a hard heart, and so does the people of Israel. Second, in several places in Exodus, especially coming when we get into the plagues in the next few weeks, we're going to see that God judges Israel, or God judges Egypt in, in the plagues, and then God relents, and then it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. So, so here we have in our passage today, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But later on in Egypt, we see, or later on in Exodus, I will get all of these words correct eventually. I hope you all can keep track, because I can't. Later on in Exodus, we see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So in some form or fashion here, God and Pharaoh both actively seem to be partaking in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So as the plagues continue, God gives Pharaoh increasingly severe warnings of the final judgment to come, but Pharaoh chooses to bring further judgment on himself and his nation 
by hardening his own heart against God's commands. So it could be that as a result of Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, God hardened his heart even further. This allowed for the last few plagues, and it allowed for God to bring his full glory into view. It allowed for him to proclaim, like we see here, and they will know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians, in verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God hardening his heart allows for God to fully manifest that. Pharaoh and Egypt had brought these judgments on themselves with their prior sins. Now, Romans 6.23 tells us this, the wages of sin is death. This is something that's been fun to go over with Walker, is to talk with Walker, what is sin? What does it mean when we sin? Well, sin's the bad things we do, right. But if sin's the bad things we do, how, what is, what's the cost of that? What does that make us to God? Well, if we sin, Dad, that makes us an enemy of God. That's right. And if, if we're enemies, what do kings do to their enemies? They kill them. They kill their enemies. So, so Pharaoh was already an enemy of God for having sinned against God. And the punishment of sinning against God, of becoming his enemy, is death. So God initially, before the plagues ever happened, would have been completely just in annihilating and wiping Egypt off the map. That would have been a just thing for God to do. But God, in his mercy, instead brings the plagues. He doesn't wipe them off the face of the earth. So God's hardening Pharaoh's heart was not unjust. Instead, his bringing additional plagues and, and his bringing additional plagues was not unjust. The plagues, while they were terrible, actually demonstrate God's mercy in not completely destroying Egypt, which would have been just. So Romans 9, 17, and 18 speaks directly to this. And it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens on whom he wants to harden. So from, from our perspective, from the outset, it seems wrong for God to have hardened Pharaoh's heart and then to punish him for the person that he has hardened. But biblically speaking, all we like sinners have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have sinned against God. All of us have a hard heart. From a biblical perspective, we're like Pharaoh. We have rebelled against God and his ways in his world. And the punishment for that is death. We have become enemies to the king. And God in his justice would be right to annihilate us, to execute us, to have us wiped away. But God in his mercy doesn't. Now, there's still some things in that interpretation and understanding of this passage, again, that, that I don't really have a good, I'm not totally settled with. But there is one thing that is obvious and one thing that is mysterious from this. And the obvious thing is that God is sovereign. The mysterious thing is how that sovereignty plays out. So, so we can't completely and in every way understand the sovereignty of God. God's ways are higher than his ways, our ways. God has given us a picture of who he is in his word. But even us and not being able to understand this shows to us that we won't be able to fully comprehend who God is and how his ways are. So we have to trust in some ways in the mystery of who God is and say, God, I may not fully comprehend this, but I do know that you're sovereign. And, and we just have to sit back and trust that. So, so the obvious sovereignty of God is seen in that God can call Moses 
It's seen in that he chose Moses, who he is, in that time and place. And it's seen in that he hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's also seen in this. It's also seen in that last phrase of verse 4. Um, I will bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now, as I've thought about this and reflected on this, something seems to be common, and that is that God's redemption of his people always comes after judgment. So, in our story in Exodus, God redeems Israel after he smites Egypt. And one, one commentator used this way, we see, we see both sides of the hand of God. We see his protective side escorting the Israelites out of Egypt, and we see the backhand of God smiting the Egyptians, right? So, so we see God redeeming his people after judgment. We see that here in Exodus, but we also see it in our own life and in our own time and in our own world, in that God redeemed us after he judged Jesus on our behalf. And church, that's the good news. That's, that's, like, that's, that's the parallel here. This is where it points us back to Jesus in that our hearts are already hard towards God. They're already hard towards his ways, yet Christ in his mercy, mercy steps into our place and bears the wrath of God on our behalf. Now, instead of receiving God's just wrath through Christ, we can receive grace and mercy. So, there is a call for every person in this room. And that call is not to wonder, is my heart hard? Instead, that call is to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, I do have a hard heart. Jesus, please give me a new one. Please redeem me and rescue me from myself. Because me and my ways want to choose what I want to do. I want to do my ways and my time and not your ways. Jesus, forgive me and fall at the feet of Jesus in repentance and faith. And the good news is that when you do that, he looks at you with grace and mercy and says, Behold, I am a God full of steadfast love, who is patient beyond patient. You who think you are good fathers, you have no idea what a good father is. I am the good father, because I am the Lord. So the question for you this morning is this, is have you fallen at the feet of Jesus and recognize that he is the Lord and that you are not? Have you recognized that your heart is naturally hard towards him and that you need a new one? As I think it's Jeremiah or maybe it's Ezekiel that says, there is a day when he will give us a heart of flesh and remove the heart of stone. Have you asked for that heart of flesh that has been given as comes through Christ? So we see that God is sovereign in his hardening of, of, of Pharaoh's heart. We see that he's sovereign in his judgment of Egypt, we see that he's sovereign in giving us a way to be united with him through Christ. And then we see he's sovereign in verse 6. This brings us to the third point, which is Moses' obedience. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, what's happened every time prior to this when God calls Moses to do something? Excuses, excuses, excuses. But in verse 6, the switch flips. No longer is Moses saying, but God, I can't, but God, I can't. Instead, what Moses is doing and what Moses and Aaron are doing is they are obeying immediately, happily, and humbly. This statement, it may seem matter of fact, but this represents a major spiritual victory in Moses and Aaron's life. The prophet had finally reached the point of genuine submission to the will of God. In church, this should be our goal. 
This should be our goal, to be so obedient that God's will is our immediate and instinctive response. Moses and Aaron, now that they understand that I am the Lord and I will accomplish my ways in my time with my people, they respond in obedience. And that brings us to verse 7, which kind of seems like an odd little footnote thrown into the middle of this. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. I've sat and I've like, man, why, why does Moses include that here? And there's commentaries don't say much about it. Some of them point out to the fact that this is, to, is proof of historical accuracy. Because if you read a book these days, most of the time they don't just add in the age of people. But here, this does add in the age of, of Moses being 80 and Aaron 83 years old. And so as I thought about Moses being 80, Moses lives to be 120. So he's spent two-thirds of his life now. He's on the final third of his life. And I kind of thought, well, let's put that in our time and day. You get to be 90. Okay? Let's say you and here get to be 90. So Moses was basically 60. And the American dream tells us that at the, you work as hard as you can until you reach 60 to 65 so that then you can enjoy retirement and spend the last third of your life enjoying life. Right? That's, that's, what we're all, that's what we strive for. That's what the American dream kind of is, is to get to that point where we can just go and enjoy things. I want you to notice something here. The last third of Moses' life is where he spends the majority of his ministry doing most of his work. For those of you that are in this room that have a little bit grayer hair than I do, just because you've reached a point in life doesn't mean it's time to fold it up and set it on the shelf and say, I've given it my all. It was a good 60 years. Now, for some of you, you need to respond now and obey for the first time God's call to ministry in your life. And some of you, don't grow weary in running the race. Continue to run the race that he set before you with all perseverance. So, so Moses, he's, he's 80 years old. And Dwight O. Moody of this, he observes, he observes this. He, said, he says, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years in the desert learning that he was a nobody and 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out that he was a nobody. So for, for those of us in the room that have, have reached that stage in life where we're st- thinking about, let's just enjoy it till the end, the call for you is not to quit, but to press on. And for those of you who aren't at that stage in life, our goal is not to reach 60. Our goal is to run the race until there is no life left in our lungs. I, I, had a, I spent a summer while I was at Tech working as a youth intern at Wichita Falls. And the, guy, the youth pastor there, was, he's really good at training guys on doing ministry stuff. And uh, Zach took me with him to go do hospital visits and nursing home visits. And Zach had three rules when you would walk into a hospital room or a nursing home room. Uh, First rule was you always stand at the foot of the bed. And the reason you do that is because they have wires and stuff up at the head of the bed, and you don't ever want to step on that. And he had a guy who did that one time and, like, stepped on their oxygen line and was (laughs) causing a lot of problems. So always stand at the foot of the bed if you ever go on a hospital visit. So first one is stand at the foot of the bed. Second is... Ask somebody if they need anything. If they do need something, take care of it. So, so you, always, you always care for the people. And then third is you pray. Right before you leave, you pray. Ask them what you can pray about. But the last line of your prayer is this. Is as long as there is life left in their lungs, there is still ministry to be done. Church, as long as there is life left in your lungs, there is still ministry to be done. If God has saved you, he has called you to be ambassadors 
He has called you to be ministers of reconciliation. He has called you to be witnesses to who he is and what he has done, not just in all of history, but specifically in your life. As long as there is life left in your lungs, there is ministry to be done. And here's the amazing thing. As soon as Moses starts to obey his calling in complete submission, he discovered that God has given him everything he needs to fulfill it. God does the same thing for every one of us. When we respond to God in obedience, he provides all the gifts and all the resources that we need to serve him. We need to discover what Moses discovered. God's call is always accompanied by his gift. And that brings us to the fourth scene, the final part of this, verses 8 through 13. We see God now begin to display his sovereignty. We're going to see it. We're in, the, we're in the prologue of the plagues. We're at the beginning of this, and this is just the initial point of it. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Now, what's going on here? Again, we have to, we have, to have some history of what's going on here. So, Pharaoh... And all of the Egyptians rightly had a fear of snakes. They were afraid of them. But they feared them so much that they actually worshipped them. They made them into gods. And so when Pharaoh would ascend the throne of Egypt, he would be going up the steps and he would say this statement. He would take the royal crown and say, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be a powerful, a leader of spirits. Now, most theologians say that when Pharaoh was doing this, what he was actually doing was he was selling his soul to the serpent. He was selling his soul to the devil. So while Exodus appears from, from a human level to be a battle between Moses and between Pharaoh, what's really happening on the, on the deeper level is that this is a battle between who is the Lord. Is it God or is it Satan? So when God says to Moses to tell Aaron to throw down your staff and, turn it, and it turns into a snake, what God is actually doing is he is challenging the God of, of the Egyptians. He is saying, I'm going to take your God and I'm going to throw it in the dirt. He was taking the symbol of the king's majesty and he was making it crawl in the dust. This is a direct assault on Pharaoh's sovereignty. It was a direct assault on Egypt's entire belief system. So, so God displays in his sovereignty and saying, I can take a staff and I can turn it into a snake and I will make that snake be in the dirt where it belongs, right? God is showing a sovereignty over their gods. So, so what, does, what does Pharaoh do? Well, Pharaoh calls on his, on his magicians and his wise men. Hey, we got a problem here. These guys say they can control the snake. What can you do? Come show that our God's just as good as their God. So he calls them in. And some incantations and theologians and historians discuss what happened. Maybe they took a cobra, and apparently if you pinch a cobra behind the head, it turns into a staff, and they throw it down, and it shocks it back into life. Or, or maybe, I mean, one theologian talks about how that, that could have been the case, or, or they're servants of Satan, and Satan does have power. And so that they actually did turn sticks into snakes by the power of Satan. We don't, we don't know what happened there. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. What the point is is that these, these magicians and wise men come in and turn a stick or maybe get a turn something into a snake. 
Oh, man, we can do it too. Well, what happens? Each man cast down his staff in verse 12, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. The exodus was God's triumph over Satan, but it wasn't his greatest triumph. God made his supreme demonstration of power over Satan through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Satan opposed Jesus from the beginning, almost from the day he was born. He used the power of government, sending soldiers to kill him. He used the power of demons and even personally tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He used the power of religion, sending priests to accuse him. Finally, God allowed Satan to put Jesus to death. But that turned out to be Satan's biggest mistake of all because it was by dying for our sins that Jesus delivered us from the devil's power. Jesus disarmed Satan's authority and made a public spectacle of him, triumphing, triumphing over him through the cross. Then in order to prove that he was not under Satan's power, Jesus was raised from the dead. Now we can say death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. He gives us victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see the richness and the sovereignty of God in the fact that he allowed Aaron's snake to swallow up all the other snakes? It's just a picture of what Jesus did when he conquered the grave. He crushed the serpent once and for all and said, I have swallowed up death. It's mine. I control it. Church, this is a promise for us to claim whenever we're tempted or fall under some form of spiritual attack. Although Satan's power is real, it's not absolute. His power over sin has been vanquished through the cross of Jesus. His power over death has been swallowed up in Jesus' resurrection. So, when you feel imprisoned by your sins, just know that while spiritual bondage is real, hold on to Jesus. Grab a hold of his feet because he has overcome. He has conquered it. He conquered it through the grave with an empty tomb. So God's sovereignty is seen <laughs> from verse 28 all the way to verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Again, here we go. God is fulfilling his word. He is doing what he said would happen. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. Only he can do that. Only he has the sovereign power to do that. So, church, that brings us to the end in a couple questions. I think there's two groups of people in this room. One is the unbeliever, those who have not confessed that he is the Lord, confessed that he is the one on the throne and that our hearts are naturally hard towards him. If that's you, you need to know that God, act, God is a just God who acts in judgment. A pastor friend of mine says this, he says, if you expose your sin to God now, he will cover it in grace. However, if you hide your sin now, he will eventually expose it in judgment and wrath. So the call for you today is, is to confess with your heart, confess with your mouth, and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Say, God, this is who I am. I have a wicked heart, one that, is, that runs away from you naturally. Save me, and God in his grace will cover it. The, the judgment of God is coming. To the unbeliever, the question is, will you hide behind Jesus, or will you stand up and protest? Then to the believer, to those of you in this room that confess Christ as Lord, there's a couple questions. One is, is your immediate and instinctive response to obey God and all his commands? Is your immediate and instinctive response to obey God and all his commands? Because if he is the Lord and he is sovereign, 
That should be our natural response to him. As a parent who says, go brush your teeth, you just say, yes, sir, and you do it. So when God says, do this, believe this, be this, there shouldn't be hesitation, there shouldn't be question, there shouldn't be doubt. It should be for you an instinctive and immediate response of obedience. We, we started this service, and every Sunday we stand up here and we say, Liberty Baptist Church exists to glorify God in Dalhart by making disciples in Dalhart and around the world. Church, this isn't just a phrase that we repeat for fun. That's what God is doing. He is glorifying himself by saying, I am the Lord. We say that every Sunday because we are a part of that. We are a part of that mission of proclaiming that he is the Lord. If you have said that you're a member of this church, my question is, how are you participating in that mission? How are you participating in proclaiming he is the Lord by making disciples, by glorifying God, by making disciples here in our town, in our church, in our homes? How are you making disciples? How are you doing it broadly? How are you doing it around the world? Are you participating in the mission of God to display his glory and sovereignty? It's not hard. It's not hard at all to make disciples. It's not. Come be a part of EBS. Come, come be involved in that. Be in the middle of that. Continue to go when God calls you to go. Continue to give when, where God calls you to give. That's how you, that's how you join the mission of God, that it doesn't exist just here, but it exists globally. Church, he is the Lord. He is sovereign over all things. He chooses when to make buttons pop off of pants so that you end up in this seat today, in this pulpit today. What kind of God do we serve? That he would choose a man who can't speak because he knew that if Moses did speak directly to Pharaoh, he wouldn't be challenging Pharaoh as God. He displays his sovereignty in that he chooses the weak things, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That is the God you serve. So when God calls you to do this, know that he doesn't call you out of a mistake, but he calls you in his wisdom and sovereignty, and then he gives you himself to go and do. Are you participating in the mission of God? Will you join me in prayer? God, thank you for being sovereign. Thank you for being sovereign enough to make buttons pop off of pants to choose people who stutter, who, who are incapable and unable to do what we think we need to do and what it takes to accomplish your mission. God, thank you for bringing us to these seats, to this place today, to hear this message. God, you and your wisdom knew what we needed to hear at this point in time. So God, may we respond appropriately. May we respond in worship. God, may we respond in obedience. God, may we be happy and humble before you. And God, may we fall at our, on our knees at your feet, proclaiming that you are the Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Stand and we will close with